Hello and welcome to Healthline 3. I'm Terry Simmons. Today we're talking with Dr. Daryl Marks with Willis-Knighton Minimally Invasive Surgery Center and we're talking about robotic surgery. We'll be taking your calls throughout the show and as a reminder, please make sure you're in a quiet room with your television turned down all the way so we can hear you and you can hear Dr. Marks. <coughs> the number to call is 318-219-4569 and you'll see it scrolling across the bottom or you'll see it pop up at the bottom of your screen throughout the show. And so let's talk about robotics. Thanks for being sure. here, Dr. Thanks Marks. Thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. Yep, yep. This is fascinating. You and I were talking about how this is super cool, I think, mm -hmm. with the technical oh, terms yeah. that it's we very use. Cool. So very cool. let's start off, because we're going to devote this whole half hour. So if you're watching, you have questions specifically about robotic surgery, if your surgery qualifies for this, if it's conducive for it. We're going to just start from the basics and dedicate the whole half hour to really sure. what happens. So let's explain what robotic surgery really is. So walking you through how an operation gets started and uh, from from beginning to end um, most robotic procedures are done for intra-abdominal problems there are robotic procedures that can be done for intrathoracic or chest problems base of tongue oral pharyngeal there are other areas to utilize the robot but my area of expertise would be intra-abdominal and occasionally intrathoracic problems which means in the chest so the first thing that happens is the patient is, is uh, undergoes general anesthesia, is put completely to sleep. Then the area that we're um, approaching will be inflated with carbon dioxide. The belly is made into a big dome, and that gives me room to work. It gives us space because there's no space in the abdomen typically. And you're there at the table. You start out. You're this. doing all of this I'm to care for the, the patient. One, I'm the one who will be gaining access to inside the abdomen. After the abdomen has been inflated with CO2, and we use CO2 for several different reasons. One is your body's used to metabolizing CO2. It's what we exhale. Also, it's not flammable, so we don't oh. want to use a flammable gas. We could use nitrogen, but it's more expensive, and CO2 is readily available, easy to get in. So, CO2, then there'll be a series of anywhere from three to four, sometimes five small incisions. They're about eight millimeters, so not much bigger than your fingernail <laughs> are placed, Gosh. okay? So, and they're placed in an array, and depending on the operation, will dictate where the ports are placed on the abdomen or in the chest. Once those devices are placed through, and it, of note, the, uh, the ports or these tubes that go through the abdominal wall don't cut anything. All, all I have to do is cut the skin, and then when I place the ports, it spreads the tissue away. So there's nothing cut, there's nothing bleeding. It just spreads the muscle, spreads the tissue, and then we're into this CO2 dome. At that point, a camera is placed into the abdomen and we place the rest of the ports in whatever um, array we would like given the operation. After that takes place, the robotic arms, and there are three parts to the robot. There's the patient cart, there's the physician cart, and then there's the brains or the tower that has all the energy uh, devices. So the patient cart is driven up the arms are then attached to the ports that are going through the abdominal wall and then the instruments which we have a great variety of different instruments to use which include staplers, sealing devices, cutting devices, needle holders, graspers, clamps, 
all different things. Anything you could imagine for an operation that you would see on a back on, a, on an operating table, we've got them, and they're on long sticks so that they can telescope in and out of the patient at great distances. So those instruments of my choice are then placed into the robot, through the arms, through the ports, into the CO2 bubble, and then after all that is done, I then leave the patient's bedside and take over the control of the machine. It doesn't do anything by itself. It's quiescent. In other words, it doesn't, doesn't move. It doesn't take off. It doesn't have pre-programmed operations. It doesn't do anything. No more than your car will drive out of your, well, maybe now your car will. But, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> but most electronic devices, most of our tools don't do anything without our instruction. So it, has, it does not have AI or artificial intelligence built in. We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> you know I want to ask that. <clears throat> but uh, at that point, I then sit down and assume control of the patient cart. And at that point, my, my fingers go into loops that are attached to arms that look like a human arm, an elbow and a shoulder and a wrist. And I have two of them. And then there are four pedals on the floor on the right, three pedals on the left, and two buttons on each handpiece. So with this, I then can control the camera and all, four work, all three working arms plus energy, plus focus, plus magnification, anything that I need. I can change the camera's orientation from looking up to down, sideways. It's, it's almost like flying an airplane mm -hmm. in a flight simulator, except it's not simulating anything. It's the real it's deal. It's the real deal. <laughs> There's, uh, people say, does it have AI? No, it's just I, you know. There's no <laughs> artificial. So um, the way I can look at things is the, the there's a button on the floor that I can pl place my foot on and press and then I take control of the camera and can zoom in, I can zoom out, I can look left, I can look right. It's like flying around in the abdomen. The other instruments are in my view so that they can move with me. And then I, I begin the operation, whatever it is, whether it be removal of a specific body part for cancer or in, intestinal organ or correct uh, anatomy problems uh, for reflux, uh, remove gallbladders, fix hernias, take out cancers. The sky's the limit. And while you're in there, speaking of the camera, you're focused on maybe the gallbladder. And since mm -hmm. it is all blown up with the air, you can, have you ever looked around and said, well, that doesn't look so Absolutely. like it's supposed to look either. Can you also just take a look at what all's going on in there and if we everything looks healthy? We can do what we say uh, a drive-by. Okay. So <laughs> there are things that we can see very easily in the abdomen uh, from a bird's eye view, if you will, 50,000 feet. We can see the intestines and we can see the colon. We can see the stomach pretty well, the liver, the top part of liver. Now we. In some situations, we can see through organs, but most of the time, we can see the surface of solid organs like the spleen. Mm. Uh, the pancreas and the kidneys and the urinary bladder are what we would call retroperitoneal. In other words, they're underneath right. other things. So it requires some degree of surgery to expose these. We can get there, but it's not something you would see on a drive-by. <laughs> okay. 
So you're in there, and then you get now you can get to it and do the so, surgery. Right. So the for example, for a, if we're doing a colon resection, uh, at that point a series of instruments are placed into position. I can elevate the the tissue that I wish, uh, and then I um, surgically uh, detach that specific area in a. It, for my technique, it's basically the way it was built, the way you're built. So embryologically, I follow the embryologic pathways. As the colon is fused in various ways, I will access those, what we call planes, which are roads. I think of it as interstates, highways, country roads, and then bushwhacking here and, and so I like to stay on the interstate where everything there's not a lot of traffic lights everything is nice and clean there's not a lot of uh, obstruction and so those are areas that you can see very clearly with the robot and with the the it's 3d high def 10 times magnification and a, a little analogy here is if you thought about seeing the world through your iPhone camera and being able to expand or not or telescope in or, or not real time as you're walking around zooming in and out that's what the visualization is like and it's 3D so it's truly remarkable so as I'm working if I want to identify a particular vascular structure or a blood vessel. We have um, um, chemicals that we can place into the vein of a patient during the very safe and they are, um, they fluoresce. In other words, they glow under ultraviolet light. And the robotic camera has two different light sources. It has an ultraviolet light and it has a white light or a xenon white light and I can flip that with a series of buttons and clutches if you will to flip back and forth so I can actually see real-time blood vessels ureters other anatomic structures for example with uh, gallbladder surgery will give this what's called ICG or endocyanin green is what it's called we give that intravenous before the operation and it's excreted through the liver and so it collects in the gallbladder and the biliary tree so that when we begin operating it, we can click to the ultraviolet and actually see the gallbladder and all of its drainage tubes glowing so we can see through fat, we can see through the liver to some degree, we can see things that we couldn't see before to make sure anatomically we're perfect. We can see unusual anatomy. It's used for identification of blood vessels. So it's a very unique tool that we use during the operation. Uh, so during the colon resection now, we've identified our blood vessel. I can separate it and then apply clips very precisely to just that blood vessel, divide between the clips and proceed on. There are staplers, which we use, and a lot of people ask me about what are staplers and are they going to absorb or is it going to be permanent? Are they going to rust? Is it a problem? We've been using surgical staplers since well before the 50s. I mean, it's not oh, something that new. Yeah, it's, wow. it, and, and then we used them as open. And, and the unique thing about the stapling 
is it's a way to prevent contamination in the abdominal cavity. As you know, when we work with intestines, there's stuff in there, mm -hmm. and we don't want that intestinal contents out of its spot, yeah, out of the tubes, out of the colon, out of the small bowel. So the way this works is the, at this point, the robot then does utilize some smart technology and will sense the thickness of the tissue that we want to divide so that we can choose the appropriate staple height to divide the tissue and seal it. And so that gives me real-time information as we go through. And as we fire the stapler, it senses hundreds of times a second tissue thickness, staple height, so that it compresses the tissue just perfectly and the staples are laid down in three rows on each side and then a knife goes just behind it. So at the end, the structure that you're looking to divide will be sealed and divided. We also have thermal sealing devices which um, will sense thickness of tissue. For example, if I want to divide a blood vessel that's between three to six millimeters, which is a pretty sizable blood vessel, that can be sealed like a uh, vacuum sealer, basically, and with a, with a knife in the middle so that there's no um, bleeding at all. It's completely sealed. There's no foreign material. You don't have to use clips. Sometimes you will, sometimes you don't. But the sealing devices, again, all of this keeps the operative field dry. So you can see and uh, keeps the blood in the patient where it belongs. We don't like it out and about where it's not supposed to be. So at, that, at completion of those parts of the operation, in some cases we can then take that colon that's been separated, open the lower part of the colon and extract it through the rectum without ever making an incision on the belly as a what we call natural orifice extraction. And then sew, just like we would do normally, I have a needle driver and we put a needle and thread and it's that facile that I can sew up the two ends of the colon so that the intestinal flow goes from one end to the other properly. The patient resumes their diet that day and usually goes home in a matter of about 40, sometimes 24 to 48 hours, depending on the operation and, and what the patient's comorbidities are and other things. So it's, tr I mean, compared to other modalities of surgery, for example, open surgery, that could be a, anywhere from five to 14 day hospitalization with no heavy lifting, with hernia risk, with infectious risk because the abdomen, the abdomen is open for quite some time. The skin is never really exposed or the under tissue is never really exposed to the air so our infectious risk is almost zero. Um, and because we don't make large incisions, our hernia risk is essentially zero. Uh, compared to the open operations, which all this, all, all these things are inherent high risk, 20% risk of a wound infection, 18 to sometimes 25% chance of herniation in, of wounds, no heavy lifting for four to six weeks after a major abdominal surgery, whereas for me, you can go back to lifting as soon as you feel like you're comfortable. And you go back to work, you do your things, and so from a 
aesthetic standpoint, looking at the abdomen from a reoperative environment in terms of if I have to go back and operate on somebody again, they haven't had a huge operation where there's tons of scarring. We can get in and out multiple times, whereas after open surgery, that becomes quite difficult. So, I mean, it, it just, it's a domino effect. It just keeps getting better and better <laughs> and better and better. The effects, and they're passed on to the patient as they move forward throughout their life because if they have, like I said, if they have something else go on with them, and another surgeon looks at their abdomen, they're like, oh, wow, that's great. Let's say they've had a colon resection that I've done. It was done through four small incisions and they would have no adhesions. The next surgeon, let's say they move to California and they need a gallbladder surgery later. Well, that surgeon knows he can get into the abdomen without a problem because there's really no scarring instead of risking injury to small bowel or colon or stomach because there's a lot of scarring that prevents that big space from being created. So if someone did have traditional surgery and they do have the scar and potential scarring inside also too, and then you wanted, you're going to do robotic surgery on this, but is it more of a, a potential of, is it different because there might be scar tissue in there? <coughs> there's as always you're scar the tissue. Scarring is yeah. normal after any operation. Inside scarring and out. inside it's, and out. Yeah. I mean, you cut your skin deep enough, you're going to get a scar yeah. inside the abdomen, uh, the intestines scar together that scars to the abdominal wall, it scars to the, to the underside of the incision, and, and these can be very dense, thick, hard um, scars, or they can be wispy, sort of like spider webs that are easy to navigate, but they're still there, and they can be the source of bowel obstructions and other problems going down the line. So in answer to your question, does it cause difficulty or does it make the operation more difficult if I'm coming in behind an open operation? The answer is absolutely. That's where experience, expertise, understanding the minimally invasive access it becomes so important, which is why I put my ports in. I get access to the belly. There are ways to it. Sometimes you can't get in uh, but those situations, at least for me, are, are few and far between. Uh, sometimes we do have to do some laparoscopic scar release uh, to facilitate getting our robotic ports in, but most of the time we can get our ports in in, a, in, a, in close to a fashion that is usable and then dock the robot and take off because the what we call adhesiolysis or taking down scarring from previous surgery to me is much easier with the robot because again, you can see the difference between one tissue plane and another. You can see the, the, the carbon dioxide bubbles getting into the areas where it's safe to dissect and it keeps your, again, operative field clean. And the other really cool thing is Generally speaking, if we can do this in a clean fashion and stay robotic, that the patient doesn't re-scar after I've taken all that down. Right. So it usually, if we, if we go back after a laparoscopic or after one of these robotic procedures for another operation, typically the scarring doesn't return. So another added benefit to, uh, to the robot. 
and a benefit to go to someone as experienced as yourself. And you, we were talking earlier, you've been doing this since 2011? Is that when you? I started with robotics mm -hmm. in 2011. Right. I, I was Dr. A, Longer. A, but. Right. A fellowship trained minimally invasive surgeon uh, going back to, uh, I completed my fellowship in 2003, but was performing minimally invasive surgery, laparoscopic, really at its infancy mm -hmm. early on in the, in the early 90s. Maybe not in its infancy. People were doing gallbladders. In the, really 80s, the but it was a, yeah. you know, in the 80s, but it was, you know, in the 80s was really when laparoscopic surgery was coming into light. And actually at that time I was a scrub tech in a hospital oh. in Monroe. So I watched those surgeons learn laparoscopy, which we, our conversion to open rate in the 80s was over 50%. You know? And so if we're just a gallbladder, it'd be like, oh, we can't do this. We have to open. That's where their comfort level is. And now, the conversion to open for a routine gallbladder is almost zero percent. Right. Um, most surgeons who uh, are my generation or younger very rarely open anybody. Now, the more advanced the operation becomes when we talk about complicated diverticulitis or we talk about esophagectomies for esophageal cancer, complicated hiatal hernia or redo operations, that's where having you know, 4,000 operations under your belt really makes a difference because it, it does change how you approach things. Because, I mean, it, like anything else, you've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, don't want to go there again. This is how we're going to prevent those problems from happening. So it was a natural progression for me to move from laparoscopy to robotics. And the reason for that, and people say, oh, well, laparoscopic is the same as robotics. If you compare them side by side for some things, maybe yes. The problem is, is there's a, there's a limitation to what can be done laparoscopically just based on the imaging you can get, the visualization you can get, the logistics, because your arms are on, your hands are on the instrument, so you're in contorted positions. Fatigue is a huge part of laparoscopy. The, and the instrumentation is not wristed, so it's, 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 we call them straight sticks. It's like, they're like golf clubs. They don't, they don't do anything at the end. And my robotic instruments, they're like my wrists. So if you could imagine going through your day with wrist splints on, and you, could you get through it? Yeah, yeah but, but <laughs> if you need to scratch your back, it becomes incredibly difficult if you have a wrist splint on. And so those were, pro now not that I tried to scratch my back laparoscopically, but you not. understand the analogy <laughs> that, that the wristed instruments for me as I move through these more complicated operations afforded me angles and approach that previously was was impossible or you had to put another port in or you're like mm, this is really tough and it took two hours where now it takes 30 seconds so it, it's it, it was just a natural progression so i jumped on in 2011 which is early for general surgeons um, but it's been a it's been a hayride ever since i mean it has just been and it just keeps getting better and better the 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 operations that we're doing now especially for abdominal wall reconstruction, for hernias, a lot, that's a real common problem so, because there's a lot of open surgery still being done. There's still a lot of hernia patients out there that have had failures and open hernia operations that are, are in a lot of cases doomed to failure. Um, 
we can get in between the layers of the muscle with the robot and do uh, retro peritoneal repairs where the mesh is not in the belly. I know everybody talks about mesh and complexities of mesh and what I tell my patients is if there was a way we could do this without mesh, we would. <laughs> There's no question. We would do that. The problem is, is it doesn't work. The body doesn't, once you have a hole that won't heal, you try to close it. The sutures eventually it's like, it's like tying a knot across your finger real tight. It's the blood flow doesn't go through. The fingers, the tip is gonna whatever you've got strangulated is gonna fall off. So you tie this up and think it's gonna heal. That doesn't happen. It pulls through. So you have to have something to offload the upward pressure vector on the abdominal wall so that the so that the incision doesn't come apart. So but that's how we can fix these hernias from underneath by placing mesh, it's like patching a tire from the inside. So again, here we go. When you patch a tire from the inside, they don't say, don't drive your car for four to six weeks. It might go flat. They, you put 80 PSI to it and you go. <laughs> this is the same physics. You put the patch underneath, you close the wound. It's in the muscle layers. It's not exposed to the abdomen. Very low risk of infections, very low risk of recurrences and return to doing what you want to do immediately. And these are really new operations and, and uh, it's very exciting to be able to offer this uh, here in Shreveport. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit more in detail about mesh that you just talked about in case mm -hmm. someone isn't familiar with that. We do hear it a lot, we ask about it and we hear it, but if someone's there, don't know, someone really literally wants to know what you're talking about then. Is it what it sounds like, a material that's like a mesh? It is a like mesh, it's a yeah. mesh, and uh, uh, the, the, a common misconception is if you have mesh, it has to be removed, that's, that's inaccurate. Mesh implantation for hernia repairs changed almost overnight with the publication of Dr. Lichtenstein for the inguinal hernia where all inguinal hernias were done a, a variety of different ways and the names were Bassini, McVeigh, Shouldice, right. these are these old doctors that that are important in surgical history because they figured out how to use your own tissue to make relax because they knew they couldn't just close the hole it was going to fail so you made relaxing incisions and you pulled your own tissue across but the recurrence rates were huge were very high uh, even in the best of hands and so Dr. Lichtenstein came out with the tension-free hernia repair where we where he used a Marlex or a proline mesh which is a woven it's like windscreen mm -hmm. except it's plastic-ish feels kind of plasticky. It's flexible in three dimensions and he simply laid it into the wound, sewed it into place and boom, recurrences dropped to 1%. Wow. Immediately. Very low. The problem with that operation as we've grown from the early 19, late 70s, early 80s when that publication came out to now is that did require four to six weeks, no heavy lifting. It was a painful operation. There were infections associated with it. There were nerves that ran across that area that could be entrapped in the mesh. But back then, this was better than anything else. The nerves were being entrapped with the Shouldice, McVeigh, and, and Bassini repairs as well. And they came back. So it was it was a given that those things were possibilities and were understood. 
Could you get a mesh infection? Sure. Could you have a recurrence? Sure. That was disclosed in part of the discussion that the surgeon had with the patient. Moving forward, um, the you still had to have four to six weeks to let that mesh scar. Now we can do this from behind, place the mesh on the backside through the small poke holes, no involvement with nerves, no involvement. It doesn't, you're not doing it through an open incision. So to date, I have not had a mesh infection from an inguinal hernia done robotically or laparoscopically. And that's because we don't open the skin. The mesh never touches the skin. So mesh is an absolute necessity when it comes to abdominal wall hernias. The only caveat to that, and which is a very area of debate, would be a hiatal hernia, which is the diaphragm. Okay. And that we, we could talk about for an hour. Yeah. You have to come back, you know that. We just, this is just too good. And so just to go back a couple of things, I can hear some questions going on in people's heads. We talked about staples, are they need to be removed or not. Are the staples that you use on the inside the same kind of staples that you use on no, the outside? No, not so even close. So that's why they don't, they're tiny, we, we're used titanium. to having to have staples removed. <clears throat> right, no, they're permanent, they don't rust, they don't set off alarms. Uh, <laughs> they're designed to be in there. Uh, and they and they are and they're in some respects helpful because when you have an x-ray or a CT those will light up a little bit and will and they will give a hint to somebody who doesn't know what they had done oh look we see staples in the left colon we know they had a colon resection so they're not they're not bad it's a it's a part of what is done in the operating room part of the instrumentation we use okay do you want to tell people before we close how they can reach you? So uh, I'm at Willis Knighton North. Uh, my office is in the DNS building. You can call us at 318-212-6975. Uh, also uh, reach us online at Daryl Marks MD uh, on the inner Google. On the inner Google, <laughs> on the interwebs. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Marks. We You're appreciate welcome. this very okay. much. Mm -hmm. Everyone, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time on Healthline 3.